Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 31st, 2016, and my guest is writer and historian Abby Smith Rumsey. She is the author of When We Are No More, How Digital Memory Will Shape Our Future. It's published in March 2016, and it is a fascinating look at memory, history, identity, and the digital information age. And she manages to discuss all this in a mere 177 pages. It's a great book. Abby, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So you've done a lot of practical work on the question of how to preserve digital content with the Library of Congress, the National Science Foundation Task Force. But you're open, you open your book with a very non-digital piece of America's heritage, which is the Declaration of Independence. Uh, what did you learn from how people react to seeing uh, that artifact? Well, at the time, it was 1997, and I was working at the Library of Congress, which holds the rough draft of the Declaration of Independence. As you may know, there's a there's an official document, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, on permanent display at the National Archives. And that's what most tourists and most people see when they think of the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. But naturally, those documents weren't born out of the whole, out of the heads of the founders. They were actually crafted by men who were working against time in the case of the Declaration of Independence to actually come out with a statement um, in a short period of time that would express something that turns out, in retrospect, we understand to be completely revolutionary in ideas. The, the rough draft of the Declaration of Independence is at the Library of Congress, and we were displaying it during this exhibition we put together in 1997. It's in four pages, and it's handwritten, and it's in Thomas Jefferson's handwriting. So there was a committee put together to draft this, and naturally, they made the youngest and the, probably the most eloquent of their members, Thomas Jefferson, draft this. And he wrote on it, and you can see it's very heavily marked up by other committee members who included Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. And when we were showing these documents to tourists and other people visiting, um, in, in, and we put the four pages, the originals, in a case behind bulletproof glass. So it was this big kind of arc-like um, thing that it was encased in. People would look for what they know on the first page. They look for this phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And it's actually quite startling, but that's not what Jefferson wrote. Mm -hmm. What he wrote is that the truths are sacred and undeniable. And those words are inked out in black ink by Ben Franklin, who then put in the words that we know today. And it so startles people that, that it opens up the whole story in their minds about how decisions are made in a political environment. And so the whole process of democracy can be unpacked by people just looking at that single artifact. And what struck me about that um, was the, the power of the artifact itself, the physical presence, and also that it revealed something about the nature of, um, of democracy itself, the rough and tumble in the negotiation. Now, I... These were not new thoughts to me because I'm a historian, but 
Um, and it wasn't new to me to see, of course, our citizens and visitors being surprised um, by looking at a draft of something that they thought they knew. But what struck me and my colleagues at the time in 97 was that digital information was already being used in government offices for email. And it occurred to me, because we took various people around, such as Newt Gingrich and Rehnquist and Bill Clinton, that their documents were now in digital form. There would be no rough drafts of anything. And so it would be very hard for people to understand very much about the, the drama of Congress and the presidency in 1997. And so I was just beginning to think about, so what would my successor in 2097 show to visitors to the Library of Congress about the 21st century? Well, there is, you know, the, the, the modern equivalent of that document, of course, is a Google Doc that's been commented on by multiple authors, but they tend to evaporate. They don't, uh, they don't stick around. Yes, and I must say, I mean, it's it's a it's essentially a track changes, but I have yeah. never seen anybody um, going ooing and awing over uh, a screenshot or even a printout of a Google Doc. Um, and the truth is that one of the things that was so powerful about this artifact was that it was 200 years old. It was over 200 years old, and we might be able to have the disk or the the hard drive, the server on which that Google Doc written today is preserved, but we will have to actually um, emulate old-fashioned technology in order to, be, to read it. So the very nature of authenticity and some physical connection with the past will be lost no matter what we do with our technologies. So one of the charms and novelties of your book is that the explosion of information that we're living through is actually not a new problem. We, of course, feel like it is at least those of us over a certain age. Uh, but you point out we've been here before. So explain and um, talk about what we can learn from that fact. Well, just what you say, the fact that um, we identify ourselves as having been, let's say you and I were, were born print natives and we're making this transition into the digital world. In 20 years time, when the world is full of born digitals, it will not seem quite as overwhelming. But um, one of the things that I talk about in the book, I sketch out, is the history of information or memory technologies, the technologies we create in order to keep our thoughts and knowledge alive over generations. We want to sort of cheat death by keeping our knowledge alive across generations, which other species cannot do. And we do this through technologies. And in the old days, and we're talking about just 100 years ago, we would actually commit our thoughts to these durable physical objects. I mean, the, the earliest technologies we know of um, date from Mesopotamia, the cuneiforms, which incidentally still exist, and we can still read them. If you can read Semitic languages, you can read a cuneiform, even though it's thousands and thousands of years old. But the, the desire that humans have, um, because we're so curious, to know more and more and to preserve what we know and to accumulate knowledge so that we can start each generation with a full, with a sort of full legacy of knowledge and move it forward in time to the work that we do. All of that is dependent upon these technologies that hold our, our knowledge for us. And there's been a drive for, from the beginning of time, I think, um, when we first invented these technologies, uh, to, um, to create more to, to create technologies of memory that have greater capacity. So we go from cuneiforms to papyrus, uh, 
to print, and we go from actually from manuscript pages to printing, which greatly increases the capacity of humans to print and circulate knowledge and to read. But with every generation, when there's a new innovation, and I talk about this in some length in the book um, and when it comes to the printing revolution, that the new, um, the new technology is very rapidly adopted because of our appetite for um, communication. Um, and we go through a, a temporary but quite excruciating period of what I call information inflation. When we're printing so much in the case of, the, of um, uh, movable type, we suddenly printed so much that people didn't know what to do with it all. And furthermore, we didn't under, know how to understand its core value. So one of the things about um, manuscripts was that they were very, it was so incredibly expensive and labor intensive to produce one manuscript, that there was this kind of built-in filter of quality. You knew that somebody had invested decades of time and money in to produce a manuscript. So you knew by cultural value that it was very valuable. With print, suddenly there was a huge change in the scale of information and people couldn't understand the value of what they read, how trustworthy it was. You know, people really did think, my goodness, if it's printed, it must be true. Why would they print something that wasn't true? Like Wikipedia. So, yeah, like Wikipedia. <laughs> it must be true. It's in Wikipedia. Yes, and much of what is on Wikipedia is true. Correct. And, of course, you can determine that by looking, um, you know, by looking at the edited pages. But there is this general sense that it takes us a while to understand the value when there's this um, incredible um, inflation. Incidentally... One of the things that's very clear from my from looking at um, past information uh, inflations is that the very earliest adopters, they come in basically, there are two tribes that are very early adopters. The first are the pornographers. Mm -hmm. we, saw, we saw this in the Internet, and we certainly saw it in the Renaissance and Reformation. And the other are ideological extremists. We saw that um, with among the the um, anti papal dissidents. We now call them Protestants, but at the time they were quite they were heretics, and some of them advocated and acted in behaviors that are very similar to what ISIS is doing now. And of course, we see in today that um, it's the ideological extremists, religious extremists in many cases, who are seem to be most adept at using information technologies, the new ones, um, to spread their ideas. But this too passes over time. So I don't want to sound too much like Philistine, because actually I, I, I totally agree with you, and I love the preservation of the past, and um, I, I love archives, and we'll, we'll talk later about their value. But in, there's a certain viewpoint, very common, I think, among um, scientific people, economists uh, to some extent, which is, well, you don't really have to read anything before 1970 or 1950 or 2000 because we've, we've figured all that stuff out. And we've, we've got that in the new, the new literature. It's already – it's sifted through all the bad stuff, and what we have now is the truth. So you know, no reason to read Newton, no reason to read Archimedes, no reason to read – uh, Menger in economics or even Keynes because we've taken out all that that stuff and you know we've that's, that's all that's all that just that's just dusty old history so all those cuneiform clay tablets who cares if we saved them we don't need them what's your response to that 
Well, um, I wouldn't say that it's Philistine. I think it's perfectly natural for people in any given time to think that they have a greater knowledge of the world than the people who precede them. Or I should say, at least in our culture, I mean, you must know, as I'm sure many people do, that in many cultures, they revere the past much more than the present. So these, there are cultures that have these myths of the golden age, that everything has gone downhill since that golden age. Yep. But we live in a time and a culture in the West now, which is very future-oriented and really believe in progress. And we believe somehow that progress means that what we add um, to knowledge means that we actually supersede previous knowledge. So as you say, why bother confronting Newton on his own terms, actually reading the man, as opposed to relying on what past generations have extrapolated from what Newton said? And I think people um, now realize that one of the things about reading Newton is you realize that he was actually a, a, a religious mystic. I mean, actually confronting Newton and Galileo on their own terms is itself quite sobering for scientists and those who believe that science is all about rationality. So I would say there's something humbling about confronting the past on its own terms. But much more to the point, I think, is that there are... And, and I go on, there's some detail about this in the, in the book, but we were, there is now actually good scientific evidence that um, in terms of biological diversity, when species go through extremely rapid changes in their habitat, for example, and I think this is happening to all species, including humans right now, that the greater the diversity of their gene pool, or in our case, the greater diversity of cultural preserved knowledge, um, the, the more we have a chance to actually um, come up with appropriate solutions. So w one example would be, um, and this is an historical example, but I think of old knowledge, uh, particularly cultural knowledge, which we've decided is no longer relevant, that we've superseded, can be actually extraordinarily useful for us at moments like this, in moments of crises. So in the Renaissance and Reformation, when um, people decided that the unified world of Christianity and papal authority was really, it was breaking apart. That just wasn't the world that we needed anymore. That world had failed. They looked around for previous, under, you know, previous models of worldviews, and that's when they went back to the past and discovered Roman and Greek learning. And without that search through old um, and sometimes um, moldy documents from the Greeks and the Romans, we actually, in the West, would never have rediscovered democracy. We would never have reinvented democracy and republican government. So I think scientific uh, knowledge that is fact-based, that is based on material evidence, um, that's a, a different kind of truth value and judgment about truth. But when it comes to political, ethical, and moral issues, there really is no such thing as knowledge that gets superseded by the present. And sometimes models from the past can tell us so much more about ourselves in the present, uh, partly because they've been distilled through time and their moral and ethical clarity is just, it's just distilled to something that we can understand. You're right. Um, it was not a technical innovation that set us on the present course, but an idea that was the radically transformative idea that the universe and all that exists is no more and no less than the material effect of material causes. Close quote. And that is, uh, you argue, is the kickstarter of our 
information, the profusion of information that we have. But at the same time, you write about the importance of the emotional, which I think a lot of modern listeners to this program will find perhaps somewhat uh, troubling. So defend emotion. Well, uh, I think that a lot of the people you're talking about, um, particularly those who are in the social sciences, sometimes scientists are less like this, physical scientists, life scientists are less like this, but social scientists confuse emotion with irrationality. And they're actually quite different. Um, and the best neuroscience tells us that, in fact, reason itself springs from, our rationality springs from um, fundamentally emotionally laden value judgments. Um, and it's, you know, biologically, we don't make a priori decisions about what is valuable and what is ethical. We actually have emotional, physical reactions to these things. And this is very well documented that we post hoc rationalize as a moral decision. There's a lot of, there's a lot of rethinking about economics and the rational, um, economic man or woman based on this recent science about, um, the way that people make decisions under emotional stress. And then go back and attach rational um, sure. thinking. <laughs> and I, Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman does a really good job, I think, of just helping us distinguish between, you know, what he calls fast thinking and slow thinking. That we react and we can actually invoke rationality to um, refine the reactions that we have. But biologically, we are hardwired to make instantaneous decisions about what is valuable and what isn't. And rationality can't, can't short circuit that. We can come in later and rationalize and think more reasonably about our decisions. But emotions are where things begin. It's what, it's what nature endowed us with in order to understand how to live. It's a survival mechanism. I love this quote. I mean, it's a little bit uh, lengthy, but it's really beautiful. Um, and gets at this somewhat, it's, you write, quote, what this means for the digital age is that data is not knowledge and data storage is not memory. We use technology to accumulate facts about the natural and social worlds, but facts are only incidental to memory. They sometimes even get in the way of thoughtful concentration and problem solving. It is the ability for information to be useful both now and in the future that counts, and it is our emotions that tell us what is valuable for our survival and well-being. When distracted, for example, by too many bright, shiny things and noisy, bleeping devices, you're not able to learn or develop strong, reusable memories. We fail to build the vital repertoire of knowledge and experience that may be of use to us in the future. And it is the future that is at stake, for memory is not about the past. It is about the future. So comment on that quote and, and expand on this idea that knowledge is more than just facts. Uh, well, first I want to uh, just back up a little bit and, and, and talk about why I argue that the, um, memory is not about the past. It is about the future. And I say this both as an historian and someone who's looked pretty um, deeply into what neuroscience says about why we have so, such prodigious memory um, and what is unique about human, human memory as opposed to animal memories. You know, um, we... We accumulate a lot of knowledge about the world so that we can, we, we know our environment so that we can, we can react in real time instantaneously without having to learn everything all over again. The whole point of accumulating knowledge, and this is true for all species, is to be able to anticipate what might be happening the next minute, the next hour, the next day. 
and humans have the unique ability, we think it's unique, to be able to, to think um, retrospectively and prospectively, not just second by second, but weeks, even decades and millennia forwards and backwards. So we accumulate all this knowledge. We build this mental model of the world. Again, this is very well documented in, uh, by neuroscientists. We have a mental model of the world by which we actually go into any situation and we anticipate what we're going to see. And the brain, which is assaulted by so much information all the time, winnows out, it ignores, it dumps anything that looks familiar and instead focuses only on what might be new in an environment. That's why, uh, that's how it's able to figure out what threats are, for example, so something new. So what this has to do with um, our inability to attend to very much, or what we perceive as our shortening attention span in the digital age, is that we haven't got the filters yet in our brains to filter out such an assault on um, our brain, such, an, such a demand for our attention all the time that digital devices um, um, the demand of us, essentially. And that's why I talk about these bleeping devices. We actually, you know, we need to be able to take in a certain amount of information and then we need to process it. I mean, scientists have said this processing of short-term memory, dumping, deciding what's not valuable and turning it into valuable long-term memory, um, that can take, well, we have to have a good night's sleep. A lot of it happens when we sleep. And sometimes it can take up to months so we know very well that people whose attention is constantly interrupted, just like their sleep is interrupted, have chronic problems with developing long-term memories. And in the case of severe cases, and I talk about this in the book, people like that actually cannot even develop a sense of, um, they don't understand cause and effect. They don't understand narrative. They actually feel kind of lost. They can't figure out how life works because there's no pattern that emerges that they can't, there's no ability to extrapolate a general meaning from any particular. And that's a very serious memory affliction. And, you know, that's a, that happens to individuals, but culturally, this culture of distraction means that, you know, we're going to be very crippled in understanding long-term patterns um, in this digital age. Yeah, I don't so know. in some ways, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, so the reason that, you know, as we move ever more quickly into the future, because so much is changing so rapidly, we actually need good memory from the past even more, because it's only the past that we use as the raw material for our conjectures about what, what can happen into the future. And this is the great thing about the engineering industry is we learn natural laws through science, through that wonderful materialist science we were talking about. We understand the laws of nature. They're quite predictable. And so we use those laws to predict how something in the real world will turn out, how much weight a, bear, a bridge will bear. And in the cases of, you know, space voyages, we have, you know, the, the, um, the team of people who explored Pluto working for 18, 20 years in a kind of group mental time travel, trying to understand what would happen at each stage of that exploration into the future. It's a phenomenal feat of um, human memory. And it happens in part through our technologies, but also just through our ability to do mental time travel, which for us will be robbed of, we will lose that ability if we do not have good long-term memory. So I think the challenge here, uh, for those of us at least straddling both ages, I don't know what it's like for our children who have, you know, as you pointed out earlier, have a very different experience of this digital world, but 
it's very tempting to spend one's day in the river of um, of the internet, just bouncing back and forth between Twitter, Facebook, your email, your messages, and not really paying attention. <laughs> um, and I think we say to ourselves, well, you know, I've got it all stored. In fact, when I have an idea, you know, I just put it in Evernote or I've got that picture in the cloud. I've got it on Flickr or I've got it in Google Photos. So I've, I'm saving everything actually. And in fact, yeah. I'm saving so much more than my parents saved. Now, my parents have passed on to to me or, or my grandparents passed on to me, you know, a couple of dingy black and white photos or color photos in the early days that are kind of fading. We're giving our kids the richest set of of preserved memories you could possibly imagine. And my two, th- two thoughts are one is, yeah, well, if you don't ever think about them, they're not really memories. And the second thought is, is your issue one of the issues you talk about, which is uh, how do we preserve those in a way that's useful and and valuable, not just to ourselves or our children, but to the collective memory of of, of humanity? And that's kind of a big problem. Yeah, and I, I I do believe that really good memory requires the art of forgetting. There's a lot that we take in every day that we really cannot and should not remember. And one of the temptations of our smartphone and smart machine technology is to capture every moment yeah. for memory. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, as you can tell, um, and as you know yourself, with too many memories, it all becomes a sort of um, a big ocean of data that we drown in rather than swim in and float in and enjoy. But, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about how we deal with this dilemma of the scale of data. How do we find something meaningful in all of that? Um, and as long as we use this model that you and I grew up with, that we do it um, manually, page by page, um, that, that will never work. We have to keep in mind that we cannot read machine code. We actually, you know, we can't read, we can read our grandparents' letters, um, but we will not be able to, and our grandchildren will not be able to take our smartphone and look at it and open it up and read anything. It's all in a code. I mean, it's just not illegible. But machines will be reading this. And Maybe. one of the things... I mean, as you point uh, out, well, there's, the technology changes very quickly. I and mean, I've got a... I've got a um, a 1985 Mac in my basement that I can't bear to throw away that's got has files on it from my you know 1985 year I'd like to look at them kind of but I don't even I don't even know if I can you know turn it on anymore I don't, I don't know if it works I don't and certainly I can't the idea of porting them into modern technologies way beyond say digitizing my photos yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's profoundly true that a lot of the stuff, and especially in the first couple of decades of this um, digital age, uh, will be lost. I mean, it will actually. I mean, my in my opinion, it will take a good twenty or thirty years for people to begin to understand how to stabilize this data over time and develop a technology people have been talking about for a long time: emulation, in which we're able to recreate a, an obsolete hardware software environment in which we can read old data. It's a dream that technologists have talked about for quite a long time. And I hear from some people that we're close to breaking it, you know, we're close to getting there and from others not. Um, but the question of, you know, how do we read so much data at scale? I mean, now we know we can read data at scale, large scale data like oceanographic 
you know, retrospective oceanographic information. Um, we can put our machines to work looking for patterns. And, you know, I could imagine a scenario in which our personal memories are read by our grandchildren and great-grandchildren through these machines that ask it for certain kinds of patterns uh, to make sense. So that we don't have, they don't slog through everything we've saved. It brings up the kinds of things that answer their questions. But I don't know. I mean, it's really, it's a difficult challenge. And uh, well, one of the challenges, I think, is that, that the people in charge of developing these technologies don't actually ask these questions yet. It's true. I'll just mention one thing that fascinates me. Uh, you know, I have, I don't know, fifteen or 20,000 photographs on my hard drive. These are not taken by my cell phone, but actually taken with what used, used to be known as a camera, which perhaps mm-hmm. in 10 years when people are listening to this, episode i hope it's still available by the way uh but you know maybe they won't know it they won't they'll have heard of them but they won't have actually seen one but um so i have photographs that i love that i crafted that i developed digitally in ways i thought were beautiful or interesting or that chronicled an experience and i keep them on my hard drive and sometimes i upload them onto a, a backup disk drive and i'm thinking why am i doing this i don't even look at them my kids aren't going to want to wade through fifteen thousand of them and at the same time, uh, Google Photo just automatically does interesting things to my photographs. Uh, I'll get a note from Google Photo saying, remember this day. And it'll go back. It'll find a day five years ago when I was on vacation in New York City and took, a you know, I don't know, 800 photographs that day. And it takes 10 of them that I kept and liked uh, or developed and somehow figures out that they're interesting. And I, it causes me to go back and remember that experience in a way I never would without that artificial intelligence working in the background because I'm not going to scroll through my 15,000 photographs to find that week, uh, weekend I spent in New York City. So it's, um, as you say, I think smart technology is going to do some interesting things to help us uh, sift through it. Yeah. You know, one of the you were mentioning one of the challenges thinking ahead is um, how much data can we store um, that's that's a separate issue from how much data can we handle, but yeah. I mean in terms of making sense of. But the storage industry now is going through a real um, real turmoil because storage is not getting any cheaper, according to some of the technologists I know. Yeah, Moore's Law is slowing down, it's, it appears. Yeah, it is. And so there may be natural limits to how much data we gather, not to how much we gather, but to how much we actually end up preserving. Um, at some point, we have to have some filtering or winnowing mechanism kick in. Again, I think this is one of the, at least based uh, on my experience as a historian, this is a perfectly natural period of time we're going through when we don't understand how to keep what's valuable and and, um, how to keep from losing that. You know, it happened with the the mention of film, for example. You know, 80% of the silent films have been lost forever because they were viewed at the time as Entertainment of no cultural value whatsoever, and the um, and the sheer cost of trying to preserve nitrate film, which, as you may know, um, is explosive. It it can blow up. It's like yeah. got TNT yeah. in it. Um, they just didn't see any point in it. Uh, and now, of course, we really regret that. Not because we want to watch old movies, but because that that has such they capture such incredibly important information inadvertently. You know that how people dressed. How they moved, how they, how you know what buildings look like, and that's why, 
you know, people can argue about the value of Twitter, but we won't know the value of Twitter for a very long time. Yeah, it's a great. So we should keep some of it. It's fascinating. I, I just want to say, in, in defense of Buster Keaton, that it, we could lose all of it as long as we kept Buster Keaton on the silent film thing. But I take your point about history. It's it, it is valuable. Um, but I want to. Twitter was my next question because okay. you. Um, you mentioned in the book, which is just shocking, uh, as we could spend the rest of the time, we won't, but we could spend the rest of the time talking about this simple um, fact that Twitter, if I'm getting this correct, gave 2006 through 2010 or 2000, four or five years of tweets to the Library of Congress, which uh, there's so many things to say about that, you know, including why and, and who owns those tweets. Aren't they mine? Which you, of course, deal with all these issues in your book. So talk a little bit about those issues and um, and why Twitter actually could be valuable. Well, Twitter could be valuable. Not um, Well, let me put it this way. All the question when it was announced that Twitter and the Library of Congress had reached an agreement that they would do some archiving. And it's together. They would do some archiving together, how to archive the tweets. There were two reactions. One was like, this is garbage. Why is the Library of Congress, you know, that has Thomas Jefferson's papers, keeping Twitter? And the other was by people who use Twitter. Oh, my God. Is that really, like, how can they give my data away? So they didn't realize that, of course, they don't control their data any more than you control your personal email on Gmail. I mean, this is one of the things that we need you to deal with. <laughs> yeah, you think you do. Well, it's very deceptive because it's your information. But it's a commercial company that allows you to give, quote-unquote, give it away. And they monetize it. So that's a whole other discussion. Um, but but uh, it was only within six months or something after the announcement, after the announcement of the gift or the um, cooperative agreement that... Uh, the Arab Spring began, uh, Tahrir Square, and which most major newspapers, outlets in the United States were getting live reporting through Twitter of what was happening in Tahrir Square. So people began to understand that, in fact, Twitter could also be um, the vehicle for contemporary um, documentation of political and other events, the way television used to be. So... The point is that it's a mixed bag. Um, these platforms, like the web, can carry garbage and they can carry very important cultural and scientific information. That's the challenge, I think, Russ, is how do we sort the wheat from the chaff? But the point of the Library of Congress collecting this is that, and working with Twitter, is if we don't experiment now on how to deal with this kind of data, then we'll just... Somebody will um, curse us in a hundred years, saying, "Why didn't they do that? Didn't they understand the value of that kind of data stream?" And of course, hard to know, as you say, what what's important or not. So the temptation is just to save everything. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I want to turn to that question. Uh, you, you write, "Collective memory of humanity is dependent on two things: a durable medium on which to record an image, text, map, or musical score, and an institution, some organization." that takes responsibility for the care and handling of the collection for generations into the future. So I just want to mention, the question I want to ask you to, to talk about is, you know, who should run these these organizations? Um, I work at the Hoover Institution. It has one of the most extraordinary archives in the world of all kinds of interesting diplomatic, historical, personal uh, correspondence of folks. I mean, my favorite example is I've held in my own hands, encased in plastic, of course, but... Uh, I've held in my own hands uh, postcards 
that Keynes and Hayek sent to each other about a submission that Hayek had to an economics journal that Keynes was the editor of. And that was thrilling for me. I wasn't doing any serious research, although I could have been. But that was just exhilarating to imagine that that postcard being written and to be able to touch it, or at least even to just to look at it. And it, seeing it digitized would be almost as good. Uh, my son spent uh, this a few weeks this uh, past month as an intern at the Holocaust Museum. And they get a constant stream of photographs, archive, of, of photographs, diaries, artifacts. And of course, they save most of it because they're not sure what what will be important to historians in the future. And, and similarly, Hoover saves as much as they can of so many things because they don't know. And now there's physical limitations of space, um, but you raise the question of, of who should be responsible for saving those things. And, um, you know, the Library of Congress is one model. But these private institutions, like the Hoover Institution, are also um, not monetizing these these assets. They're simply uh, dedicated to, to storing them and making them available to scholars and increasingly to the public. So what are your thoughts on that? Yes, well, one of the things that is very true is that the, these organizations that uh, span multiple generations are the only things that keep memory alive, that our entire cultural heritage. Without them, we wouldn't have these things. This, this is the, um, the stewardship across generations that's so vital for our collective memory. I don't think people understand how much of what we take for granted now has actually been very carefully maintained, curated, and stewarded by generations of people. It doesn't have to be private or public. What it has to be is sort of, it has to be, the organization has to be focused on the long term, serving both short-term research needs, perhaps, but also ensuring that people are in future generations will have access to it. So one of the wonderful things about these organizations is that they have a very different time horizon than individuals. And most importantly, and this is what we focused on with the National Science Foundation Task Force on the economics of archiving, most importantly, they really play a very vital role in a capitalist market society. Commerce has very little incentive for keeping any of its assets, cultural assets, like Film studios produce movies that are part of our cultural heritage. They have very little incentive um, or means to preserve that material on behalf of the public for the future once those assets cease to make money for them. And so the way that we've had so much of privately created cultural content last for so long is by having the creators um, moving those assets, you know, the culture, into these long-term institutions. Um, that are really, they look very stodgy, um, and they're very conservative by nature, libraries, museums, archives. But that's their point. They are actually <laughs> supposed to servers. They are supposed to conserve and, and take in what is valuable and keep it intact. So there's this very, uh, there's an abiding tension between, you know, the commerce of making and creating and circulating culture and knowledge, and then the obligation um, that this knowledge be kept available for generations. That's why the founders created copyright for only 14 years, of course, um, but they created copyright to give people incentives to create, but to make sure that they couldn't monopolize that that information, that knowledge forever. 
So we, it's just something that doesn't, you know, those, the things that worked well in, in the infrastructure that handle physical objects, that doesn't work for the digital age. And I spend a fair amount of time in the book pointing out why it's different, um, but also saying that this is part of the task of our generation and the next two generations is to rebuild these institutions to handle the scale and to reform copyright um, and licensing agreements so this, this material endures for the future and to build archives, private or public, that sustain this material and make it available into the future. I just want to mention the... Um the British Museum, which I recently saw called Mankind's Attic, which is an interesting um, <laughs> metaphor for this problem, this, these challenges, right? Because I think human beings tend to throw things in their attic or basement just because, quote, just in case. Um, and the British did this for 300 years or so, maybe a little longer. Uh, and having visited the museum uh, recently for the first time, I was just struck by the unintended positive consequence of British imperialism. British imperialism is way out of fashion these days, but because of it uh, and the desire to a belief that we should save stuff, uh, the British Museum is an extraordinary chronicle of, of human activity, culture, war, art, etc. And I you know, we live in a time when, as you mentioned earlier, religious extremists, I'm thinking of the Taliban, work actively to destroy such artifacts. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's nothing more horrifying than seeing a war against a people being waged by the destruction of their cultural record, their cultural history. We saw this in the Balkans when the um, library in Sarajevo was torched. Um, as if somehow the Bosnians could be effaced from the planet by having their entire history effaced. Um, so, you know, as someone who spent many formative years living in the USSR and experiencing what it is like to have a regime control um, the entire story told about the past, um, I, I, to me, the question of our cultural and collective memory it has a technical side, Russ, but it's profoundly moral. It's fundamentally a moral issue, a moral obligation um, to the next generation that they have at least as much access to the past as we did. That, you know, we inherited many things, a heritage of, um, of information and knowledge from our predecessors, and we need to hand that on intact, even if we have to fudge it during this period of, you know, digital abundance, digital sort of vertigo. You know, it's interesting to look at... Um, all the turmoil on American campuses and actually on, on British campuses as well about um, students who are um, saying, who gets to tell the story of the past um, and, um, and what story is that? So you see this agitation on campuses this year about the names of buildings, yeah. uh, for example, uh, and it's because... It's because we now have people going, being solicited, being, you know, actively recruited, um, minorities and underrepresented people to become part of this educational system. They come on campus. They're 18, 19. They're preparing for the rest of their lives and they don't see any of their own personal past on campus. They have to ask themselves, what am I doing here? Yeah, do I, do I even belong? Sure. Yeah, so, you know, you can see, I mean, it's very touching to me to see activism um, about the historical record, even if it seems extreme and misguided to some people. 
um, these are young people after all, and they're basically claiming, is a wonderful example that without knowledge of my own history, without it being visible here on campus, it's like saying, I don't belong here. Yeah, well, I just saw Hamilton yesterday, or was it yesterday? Two days ago. It seems like yesterday. And of course, uh, that musical is, part of it is about who tells your story, and Hamilton's story is less told than some of the others. Burr, his story is told in a certain way because of the way things turned out that um, might have turned out very differently in terms of just what we think of when we think of these these historical figures. And it's, um, it, it is important, and it's part of our identity, which is maybe a nice transition to the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is about Montaigne, the French essayist. Um, you devote quite a bit of time to him. He's a very interesting human being, of course. Um, but one might ask, why is he in your book? So uh, why is he important? How does that fit in? Well, uh, Montaigne is in my book um, partly because I love Montaigne, and it's wonderful to talk <laughs> about him. Um, but the, And for those who don't know Montaigne, <laughs> yeah. Uh, right, well... Um, but it's, very, it's also very difficult to tell such a comprehensive history as I do in relatively short form um, simply by ticking off major events. So I did try to tie in the, you know, the history of various information inflations, you know, information technology revolutions, um, by telling the story of people who lived through them. I, and in this case, I, I chose Montaigne in part because he was um, he lived in the 1500s, and he was uh, brought up as a print native, and he lived through all of the the bad side of what happens when the world falls apart, and there was um, a century of very vicious religious wars between the various Protestant sects among themselves and the Catholics. And Montaigne was a man who, in the manuscript age, would have written a lot of letters to his family and ruminated about the meaning of life and himself. But since he grew up in the age of print, he actually printed these these ruminations, um, which he called essays. And he, he talks about why he wrote essays, in part because he had lost his friends and writing was a way of continuing his, his conversation with his dead friends, but also... Um, he coyly says he wants his family to have a record of him when he's, you know, when he's gone. But the the essays themselves struck a real chord with the audience of the time. Um, he was able to write about um, about the human personality and a lot about the pa- about the pagan past in a way that was a very safe way of talking about some of the issues that they were living through at the time. And one of the things that, that we so love about Montaigne is he's credited with inventing a new genre, the essay, but I also think he invented a new audience. Simply by being able to print and circulate these things, he created a new audience in the way that now that almost everybody, everybody with an internet connection, has the ability to tell their story, to put their home movies up on YouTube, or to write their story through a blog, people can expand um, their audiences and create, in a way, a new, a new demand for this kind of writing. Incidentally, another reason I wrote about Montaigne was because one of the first things that um, I've noticed about our age um, and access to the Internet is how quickly the blog form grew up. And in publishing, how the most, the best-selling nonfiction genre is memoirs. Yeah. And they're all based on the, whether they know it or not. It's all um, 
Montaigne's doing that we're so obsessed with ourselves and documenting ourselves. Well, I think it's so funny when people say, um, particularly people, I'm 61, but particularly my age and older and some younger, they'll, they'll say, you know, I don't, uh, I don't go on Facebook because I don't, I don't want to know what you had for lunch. Um, my father, in fact, calls it Nosebook. Um, it's just, a, I don't know. I just, I get a kick out of that. He actually knows it's Facebook, unlike LinkedIn, which for a long time he called LinkedIn. Uh, but, <laughs> but he knows it's Facebook, but he calls it Nosebook because he doesn't get it. And I get that he doesn't get it. But ironically, as you're pointing out, really m- much of the human uh, curiosity is about what people had for lunch or the equivalent, what, you know, how Montaigne spent his days or how other memoirists, uh, what they were thinking when they did the mundane or the, the, the bigger things, of course. We care about those too. But um, we do care about, we care about everything, actually. Yes, and I think we also, we we feel very lonely unless we connect with other people. And one of the, such a remarkable thing about the internet is that rather than um, the internet being something that alienates and uh, removes human beings from human contact, which is what a lot of people fear. Oh no, they're talking on their machines all the time. Yeah. In fact, what they're doing is they're communicating. I mean, they're creating communities of their own and they're finding like-minded people, people who breed poodles, who would never meet each other because they live in different countries. And, and the behaviors we see among the young, who are the digital natives, we tend to blame on the technology, and that's really um, foolish. When I was 14 or 15, um, I went through a period of time where I couldn't get off the telephone. I was constantly talking to my friends. And I actually didn't go spend time with my friends. We didn't get together after school. We could have. What we did was we went home <laughs> and used our parents' telephones yeah. to talk because it created a form of intimacy that we were not able to have face to face at that tender age. Yeah, that's a great and so point. I think I think that that when these fourteen and fifteen year olds grow up and they start to worry about when they start to work in the workplace and they start doing email and LinkedIn for their professional careers, and when they start when they have children and when their children start to mock them about their old technologies, <laughs> oh mom, you and your Facebook. And you know, these are people who will live into their eighties and nineties and hundreds even. You know, the whole nature of memory will change. They will, um, they'll grow older. They'll, they'll be less interested in what is new about the world and look more long term about the, the span of, what, about the span of their lives and the continuity from, you know, their, their early days until their late days. So I think it's just, you know, like I said at the beginning, we're caught awkwardly in this transition phase. We know what we're losing, but we can't yet see what it is that we're gaining. And so that's why I point out in history, you know, why I use historical examples. People were always slow to understand the full potential of the full positive potential of the new technologies, just as they missed some of the dire um, bad potentials of the technology. Let's just take a quick technical question I meant to ask earlier because I don't want to forget it. Um, You know, you write about the destruction of the library at Alexandria, how some of those things were saved, but or were found elsewhere, but many things were lost. Um, and in the old days, fire was the great threat. And many authors, many economists I know have lost valuable things to fire. Um, in the old days, you know, your 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 book or your PhD dissertation was, was something you carried around with you. 
and you could lose it. It could get stolen. It could burn down, and then it was it. There were you know there was no there were no xeroxes. There were no so life had a very memory and preservation of 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 documents had a very um, fragile existence. And today it seems everything's great because it's all backed up. Um, but as you point out, um, we're very dependent on electricity uh, to preserve that. Uh, how worried are you about that? Those sets of issues for our digital memories. No, actually, it's my greatest concern. Um, it's the thing that um, that it's it, it's hard to talk about only in the context of digital preservation because or digital memory or digital information because the entire. Our entire society is so technologically dependent, and that and those technologies are so dependent upon information, digital information, but also secure, um, uninterrupted sources of energy, an increasing amount of energy. And what worries me the most, it's not information policies, those things, or technologies of preservation. We can solve those problems if we want. What really concerns me is our inability to address forthrightly um, our overconsumption of the natural resources that we depend upon for life. And um, I'm not just talking about the green economy. I'm talking about resources altogether. And I'm not just talking about the natural, if extremely regrettable, um, denial of climate change and the, and the inability of us to reckon with it in, in real time. But, but how, in general, we're at this, in this phase, and I think a lot of it is driven by our infatuation with science and engineering, um, and you know, aggravated by the capitalist economy, I think that we're very short-term focused. The whole idea of thinking about the long term, about planning 20, 30, 40 years out for infrastructure, it, it used to be one of the strengths of the United States, and it's collapsed mightily. Um, and it seems that it's totalitarian governments such as the Chinese who are better able to plan uh, long-term infrastructure to address such things, even if they choose not to. So that's, you know, that's my ultimate concern. Um, and digital, digital information is one key part of it, but it's wrapped up in a much larger problem that the species now has about, um, not being able, despite our, our brains and our technologies, to actually, um, act rationally. Um, instead of irrationally, and to plan for the future rather than just thinking short term. You know, I'm not as pessimistic as you are, um, and I'm not as optimistic about, say, totalitarian governments planning for the future. I don't think they do it well at all in the abandoned cities no, of in a China. Too. Yeah. yeah, they're in a position to, but that's it's so not enough. Uh, it's so insufficient. I think we will muddle through, adapt. Um, solve some of the technological issues related to climate change to the extent uh, it's as severe as people think. I'm not as worried about that either, but that's a, that's a long other question. I just want to talk about the very practical question of if you could be in charge of a large sum of money to um, protect the digital resources of the future, what kind of infrastructure do you think we ought to be thinking about uh, whether we're thinking about it or not? Where are some of the ways we might be heading? Because, you know, in my mind, I think, well, we just need to take all the knowledge and just put it on the moon somewhere so we'll have it. <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> that's not a plan. That's a fantasy. Uh, yeah. but, but you do think of it that way. It's like, 
Well, I've got my hard drive. I'll just make another one, and I'll put that in the safe deposit at the bank, or I'll put it in my uh, mattress upstairs. So if my house gets broken into and somebody steals my computer, they won't get that. Oh, well, that's not so good. I'll put it in the cloud. But what if the cloud loses its – what if that company goes out of business? I mean, there's just so many – there's just no risk-free way to solve this problem, I don't think. Uh, it seems to me the obvious way to think about it is just it needs to be spread around so that you're not relying on any one thing, uh, any one great cloud, any any one company's great cloud. I have all my photos at Google, but I also have them at Flickr, and I got them on my hard drive. I'm, I'm ready. But in terms of, of, of a nation, what do you think we ought to be thinking about? Well, I do think um, high redundancy or you know, an appropriate level of redundancy is the way to go. And how much that redundancy is, you know, I can't say that's that's something that technologists think a lot about. But I think it is in a networked distributed world, our information is replicated pretty easily. And so um, that I think that's the best strategy. It is not to actually put it in one place and um, behind, you know, a gate or a key. It's actually to replicate it. You know, if you want to send it to the moon, fine, but um, let that uh, that's not the only place. Um, you know, if I had a lot of money to solve this problem, well, I think a lot of the, uh, I mean, I wish I had some influence over policymakers, and I'm not sure money. Me too, Abby. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I just, a lot of, you know, I actually think the issues of um, policy around data use, um, national security versus privacy and open versus proprietary, that kind of thing. Those are those are the pressing issues now. And yeah, if we great. lived in a different world with a different political um, campaign right now, those are the things that we'd be debating. Um, there are many people um, who are, uh, you know, in, in the knowledge economy, scientists and scholars who who say repeatedly that once we solve these issues, once we actually get around um, data privacy, security, the ability to anonymize medical information, for example, once we have that in place, then there'll be a new wave of innovation in technology, which will actually redound mostly to consumers um, and to individuals. Um, but in the meantime, I think we can argue, we can agitate, we can vote. And we also uh, should uh, take advantage of organizations like the Internet Archive, which um, and other institutions that allow us to upload our memories. Um, and we ought to agitate for more of those. Uh, I, I want to read a poem. Uh, I don't think I've read. Everyone's going to read a poem on Econ Talk. I don't think I've read this one before, but it, it's uh, it's very appropriate. And we'll close with you talking about this because I think it's it, we've touched on it. The poem is Forgetfulness. It's by Billy Collins. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of, as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue or even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It is floated away down a dark mythological river, whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall, well on your own way to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. 
No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. That's one of my favorite poems. Um, It touches on a lot of things we've talked about, which is the importance of forgetting, the inevitability of forgetting, the desire that we all have not to forget, and yet we know we can't remember everything. So talk about how you think we as human beings are going to go forward in a world of very crowded, with lots of ways to save things. What are we going to forget and what are we going to try to remember? Well, one of the things that's, that we will always remember is Billy Collins, I think, that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, what an, what an amazing human soul, you know, to, to address so forthrightly the weakness of human memory, and yet at the same time, the way only poets can glorify the human spirit. To, you know, for even, for him to say that having once known these things is itself something so profoundly human. You know, it's sort of, I mean, talk about giving hope. But um, the humility of knowing that you can't know everything, even where to look things up anymore sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that one of the things about having access to a lot of cultural memory is that, um, when we read about even the imaginative lives of other people, fiction or something like that, we take it in, it becomes part of ourselves, it becomes like our own mental furniture. And what he describes is actually very common that we absorb something at such a deep level, other information, that we can lose the title, we can lose the name of the river, which I, as I recall is Lethe. We can lose all of those, you know, the, the capital of Paraguay, the things that we don't use every day, but the experience of having taken in something and imagined, empathized with another human life, that's what actually forms this sense of um, commonality with other human beings. And that's why the more expansive and diverse our access to cultural memory, to different cultures and their traditions, it's just, it makes it so much easier for all of us to live on, as you say, a very crowded planet. And now that we're in a global community, I think we need to be more focused on, or at least we need more arts education and more learning about the cultural folkways of other people on the planet so that we, because we deal with them in so many ways and conflict is so, conflicts of interest are so easy to, to arouse now and arise between peoples, that having had some kind of um, access to their, to their culture and, and experiencing the world through their eyes, I think will lead to a more peaceful world. My guest today has been Abby Smith-Romsey. Her book is When We Are No More. Abby, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.